Welcome back to That's Ancient History. I'm your host, Jean Mingus, and today's topic is all about giving that ancient history a new spin. I will be chatting all about retelling Greek myths in modern literature with my guest for this episode, Madeline Miller herself. Madeline Miller is a classicist, a teacher, and the author of award-winning novel Song of Achilles, as well as her latest book, Circe, which is already a bestseller and possibly, more importantly, my favourite book of 2018 so far. Circe retells the classical myth of the goddess Circe. She was the daughter of the Greek sun god Helios, who was a member of the generation of gods known as Titans, who were overthrown by their younger generation, the Olympians, headed up by Zeus. Unimpressive as a goddess to those she grows up amongst, Circe develops an aptitude for witchcraft or sorcery as she grows. These newfound powers make her a member of a very small group in Greek mythology and she demonstrates her own prowess in magic as her tale progresses. In ancient literature, she is possibly most famous for her appearance in Homer's Odyssey, in which she hosts the Greek hero Odysseus on her personal island for a time during his journey back to Ithaca after the Trojan War. Madeline Miller's novel makes sure the reader knows that this is just one moment in a complicated and enthralling life story, full of various other characters of mythology that make their mark on Circe's life. Miller seamlessly knits together the varying myths from antiquity that involve Circe in order to provide the reader with a complex character who grows as a god, a woman and a person as the story develops. But I'm going to stop myself from rambling on because I have an expert on the topic here with me to tell you a little bit more. Thank you so much for joining me today. I'm very excited to pick your brain about Circe and Greek myth retellings. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. Um, well, I'm sure you get this question a lot, but I feel like I have to open with it. And that's, why did you pick Circe? What was it about the myth of Circe that you wanted to, to bring to life in a new way? Um, the, the first time I really encountered Circe, I was about 13, and I was... Um, reading the Odyssey for the first time, my own copy of the translation. My mother actually used to read the Iliad and the Odyssey to me when I was much younger, but uh, this is my own version. And when it came to the Circe episode, I was really excited because there are not very many female figures from ancient myth like Circe. You know, yeah. She's powerful yeah. and clever and independent. Um, and so that was really, that was very interesting to me. And of course she has pet lions that, you know, <laughs> that helps, um, especially for my 13 year old self. And what, uh, what I was interested in is sort of this, this conflict that was going to happen between her and Odysseus. And I thought, well, she's clever and he's clever and this is going to be a great scene. Yeah. Um, and what actually happens in the scene where the two of them meet is he has these magic herbs that Hermes has given him to make him immune to her spells. So she's already turned his men to pigs. He comes in the house. She tries to turn him into a pig. It doesn't work. And then he pulls out his sword and threatens her. And she, you know, screams and falls to her knees and kind of completely yields, begs for mercy. And I just, I was so disappointed at the time as a 13-year-old. Yeah. Um, you know, I understood kind of the basics of this is the hero's journey mm -hmm. and she's an obstacle mm -hmm. who has to overcome her. But I just wanted her to have a little bit more airtime. Yeah. <laughs> um, and and so I think that was the initial impulse is mm -hmm. that she's such a mysterious character and we move past her so quickly. Yeah. Um she's obviously very complex. People mostly remember the pig part, which you know, I don't blame them for. Um 
but she's gotten a really bad reputation. People tend to see her as, as kind of evil and alluring and she's the temptress and she's a man-hater. But I think people sometimes forget that the second half of the episode, she says to Odysseus, you know, stay and heal. When he arrives on her island, he's totally grief-stricken. He's lost all his ships but one. He's seen his men eaten by the Cyclops. I mean, you know, he is in extremis. And she says, you know, stay with your men. You can stay as long as you need to. And they stay for a whole year. And at the end of the year, Odysseus doesn't want to go. Um, it's his men who have to kind of nudge him along. Mm -hmm. So that was very interesting that she has this sort of menacing aspect, but this healing, benevolent aspect as well. And then when he does decide to go, she immediately helps him. You know, she, she there's no sort of hint as there with as there is with Calypso. Mm -hmm. You know, that he has to stay. She wants him to stay. None of that. Um, and she gives him all this knowledge about how to get past monsters and how to talk to the shades of the underworld. And so I loved that kind of witchy power she still has, even though she's been kind of tamed and brought into the hero's story. Um, so I wanted to explore all that complexity. And then of course, there's the main question, why is she turning men to pigs? <laughs> Which Homer doesn't tell us. Uh, and seems like kind of an important yeah. question. And you know, oftentimes I think particularly the female characters seem to do things, you know, for just because. Mm -hmm. They're irrational, they're capricious, they're evil. Um, but I think those are boring assumptions and answers. Yeah. And so I wanted to have a much more, hopefully, interesting answer as to how you could come to that point, that pretty extreme decision. Yeah. And then, you know, what happens after as well. Yeah, she, she comes across as such a complex character in the novel. It was really wonderful reading about this woman from Greek myth that is perhaps categorized into these tropes or um, otherwise and and then she she really comes into her own in in Circe, in Circe. <laughs> um, did, did you start then by writing the scene with Odysseus and Circe because I one of the things I loved about the book was that that was a central moment in her life but it wasn't the only moment in her life and she's more than that and she's so many different moments and you really gave them all equal weight I felt in the story but was that where you started? No it wasn't actually um, I, I knew it was coming and, and that was very important to me that you know she is a cameo in Odysseus's life mm -hmm. so I flipped it and he's a cameo in her life yeah and actually I held him so she's in two plus books of the Odyssey and mm -hmm. he's in two plus chapters of the novel and I really mm -hmm. I was very deliberate about that I like that symmetry <laughs> that is nice that's nice to know actually you don't always pick up on these things on an initial reading but it's you go back and think oh yeah I like that <laughs> well it felt it felt important because I you know Odysseus expands to fill a lot of room he's a very yes. interesting character <laughs> he can really take over yeah um and so I wanted to I wanted to make sure that he was you know just just a very small part of her story. Like that. Um, so, but the place I actually started, I, I mean, I want. I knew I kind of wanted to start at the beginning, but I also, because I'm a classicist, I'm always drawn toward in medias race. Yeah. Um, so you know, jumping into the middle of things, into the middle of the story, <laughs> as all good yeah. epics begin. Um, so I started actually the the oldest scene in the whole novel is the scene where Daedalus comes to her island. And takes her to takes her to Crete, yeah. um, 
I don't know why that was where my brain went first. Mm -hmm. um, I was really interested in her relationship with her sister, who's Queen of Crete. Mm -hmm. uh, her sister is Pacify, the mm -hmm. mother of the Minotaur, um, and that was another really interesting character to examine. <laughs> A character I feel like has not gotten her due, even though she has this extremely interesting <laughs> story. How do you become the mother of the Minotaur? I think you have to be a pretty intense person. She's not often remembered in sort of popular culture, modern myth issues. She, yeah, <laughs> she doesn't come up a lot. <laughs> <laughs> no, no. And so, so it was fun to... So I think I was very interested in that dynamic of Cersei, her sister, this intense sister, and then <laughs> Daedalus, um, and of course the Minotaur coming yeah. into it. You know, I do think as a novelist that if you have the opportunity to write a Minotaur birth scene, you have to go <laughs> for it. So. Yes. <laughs> Make the reader feel like they're there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it was, uh, no, that was a wonderful part of the book as well, because it felt like quite a positive, like, moment in Cersei's life, or a growth, a moment of growth, with when she went to visit Pasiphae and met Daedalus. Yes. 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 Well, I was nice hoping that, you know, she, Cersei is kind of this, this interesting figure. Homer gives this detail about her in the Odyssey where he says that she um, is the dread goddess who speaks like a human, like a mortal. Yeah. And I loved that because to me it implied that she kind of straddles both worlds, that she's a foot in the, in the divine yeah. world and a foot in the, in the mortal world. And I think Daedalus is a little bit the same, yeah. that he, um, he's, all mortal, but he has this power and this gift for creation that mm -hmm. makes him almost godlike and certainly draws gods like flies. Yeah. Uh, and so I think the, it's, you know, Cersei spends a lot of the novel, I think, looking for connection and friendship with people who are not horrible, um, i.e. not her family. And <laughs> so it was nice to have her have that moment, you know, yeah. with someone who can, is kind of just on the opposite side of the line that she's mm -hmm. on. Yeah, no, uh, absolutely wonderful. It, it, it's so nice hearing you describe it as the author and what you were thinking behind it because it that makes complete sense <laughs> as a reader as well. That makes complete sense. Um, I'm interested actually if you felt like how to to what extent did you have to create Cersei's character or do you feel like it w it already existed in the ancient texts? Like was it um, a big undertaking creating a full character or was it just about adding little bits in here and there? I felt like I pretty much had to create it. Okay. Um, Homer gives us very little. I mean, we see that she's powerful and knowledgeable mm -hmm. and that she knows herbs and she has the lions, so that aspect. Um, those were sort of pieces that I picked up on, but he doesn't really say much about her except that she should be, she's able to be frightening, at yeah. least at, <laughs> by that time <laughs> in her life, she's able to be quite frightening. Um, and that she has this kind of mysterious dignity, she sometimes comes off that way to others mm -hmm. at that point in her life. Um, Ovid gives us uh, a very different portrait of her. His Circe, he, well first of all he loves Circe because she's a goddess of transformations and he's yeah. fighting the metamorphosis. <laughs> the transformation so but his Cersei is very pathetic I find I think she's this lovelorn she's constantly mm -hmm. falling for the wrong guy it's always like he's just not that into you Cersei mm -hmm. and then she gets angry and she mm -hmm. turns him into something or she turns the woman he loves into something and so I actually very purposely wanted to push back against Ovid because mm -hmm. um, her her motivations feel so shallow mm -hmm. and they feel very stereotyped they feel sort of like Ovid is interested I don't get me wrong, I love Abed. <laughs> great reading, but not always great representation. <laughs> Wonderful, yes, yeah. exactly. Um, that, you know, Cersei in, in Abed is, is sort of the, the classic irrational woman who lashes out yeah. um, and, you know, over love. And 
so what I did is I actually I kept kind of the triangle that Ovid gives us between Circe and Glaucus and the nymph Scylla. Mm-hmm. Uh, I won't say any more there. Um, and I had Circe make the horrendous mistake that she makes in the context of Ovid, but I tried to give her a little bit more of a reason mm-hmm. behind why she would uh, she might make that choice, mm-hmm. and. Um, and then she had, and then I, it was very important to me to have her live with the consequences of this horrible thing that she's done for mm-hmm. you know the rest of her eternity. Yeah. Um, and most of all, I think what I what I tried to do as I was constructing her personality is just to really take little pieces and try and that are all told from the male poetic perspective or the male heroic tradition, mm-hmm. and kind of turn them around and imagine them from. Cersei's perspective as a woman, but also as this side character who doesn't get a lot of a lot of play. So one of the very small details that I, I tried to use is that in Homer he talks about how she has this, you know, beautifully braided hair. Um, which seemed to me like that's what Odysseus brags about, is he's like, Oh, I was on this hot goddess's island, um, and you know, and her hair was so fabulous. But I tried to think, well, you know, if you were a witch who's constantly walking in the woods and digging up herbs and gardening, of course you would braid your hair. Practical. And right? It's very practical. (laughs) And so I tried to look at it, you know, to take out that sort of heroic gaze and put back in, you know, a practical gaze. Sexualized. Yeah. Yeah. That's really wonderful. We did, that's one of the things I've always enjoyed about Greek myth retellings is getting the perspective of someone that wasn't necessarily the central focus of an ancient author's tale. Yes. Um, I, I wonder how difficult it is like walking that line between staying accurate to the extent you wish to stay accurate to the ancient text and creating something that will resonate with a modern audience. Because you're somewhat of a pro of writing Greek <laughs> myth retellings now, so I feel like you might have some insight on this. <laughs> Um, for me, I think I, I always want to be serving the character and the story. Mm-hmm. So I did make actually quite a big change, I think, towards the end of the story. Um, I was drawing on the lost epic, the Telegony. Um, so they're, you know, the Iliad and the Odyssey are the most famous of the epics. Yeah. Um, they're the ones that have survived, but there were many other epics. And so the Telegony was one of them where Circe has a child with Odysseus. Again, spoilers? I don't know. Does it count? It's out there. It's so hard to say whether (laughs) it's a Greek myth spoiler. (laughs) It's 3,000 years old. So she has a son with Odysseus whose name is Telegonus. And through a variety of things, I'm being vague, um, Telemachus and Penelope end up coming to the island of Aiaia and meeting Circe. And there's sort of, so that, first of all, I knew that was coming mm-hmm. at the end of the novel. And that was very exciting. And I wanted to stay true to that part of it. Um, but then I, I sort of, I changed the ending. The telegony ends with, I think, a little bit of a surprising for Greek myth, kind of tied up in a little ribbon and a bow. <laughs> and it, it feels, it doesn't feel like Greek myth. Mm. Yeah. Um, it, it feels next? Much too, yeah, much too happy. Yeah. And, much too um and I didn't want to make it an unhappy an artificially unhappy ending Mm -hmm. but I I did want to make it a a complex ending Mm -hmm. an an ending that is rooted in real life Mm because I think that that is what Circe is struggling with for a lot of the novel she wants to find um she's moving away from her horrible divine family and sort of exploring mortality humanity what it means to be human and so I wanted there to be kind of a, a final reckoning with that um 
so, you know, I, in some ways that was very bold of me, I guess, to, to change that, but it felt like I, I wasn't, I couldn't write it the other way, yeah. the way the myth is, because it just felt too neat. I feel sometimes Greek myths don't make sense, <laughs> and you need to change them, because you, I don't know if it's because we're missing traditions or something, but certain characters will jump from one type of behaviour to another, and you'd be like, how did we yeah. get here? <laughs> right. Yeah. Right. Well, and I think, and I think, you know as you know, as a, as a classics uh, PhD student, that, you know, coming from the myths, the ancients changed the myth all the time. Exactly. You know, every time someone would retell it, Abed or Virgil or whoever, they were putting their own spin on it and changing exactly. it. So, you know... Why not us? Why not? <laughs> <laughs> I completely agree. <laughs> None of this sort of must adhere to the Hom- Homeric version. It's, it's wonderful seeing these stories being re- retold for a modern audience. Um, do, there, do you think retelling Greek myths as well kind of has a widening, widening effect on how accessible classics is? Or is that something you hope to achieve with your books? It absolutely is. So I'm a classics teacher by training, a Latin and Greek teacher, and um, I very much wanted both these novels to be the type of thing where you didn't have to know classics Mm -hmm. in order to read them, that you could just, you know, jump right in and hopefully I would give you all the background you needed. I didn't want people to feel like they had to do homework. Mm -hmm. Um, But at the same time, for people who did know classics, I've hopefully packed a few goodies in there (laughs) along the way. Um, But I I really believe that these stories should be for everyone. And Mm -hmm. in the ancient world, they were for everyone. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, the Iliad and the Odyssey, these were stories that were handed down through oral tradition and that everybody knew. And so... I, I want people to feel that way that you know they don't belong to a certain group that keeps them in a little cupboard. You know they belong to everybody. That's wonderful. So a, a wonderful intent, <laughs> as well as to create wonderful fiction. <laughs> but it's always nice to see somebody trying to kind of break down the, maybe the loftiness of classics. <laughs> yes. Well, and you know really there, I, I think we have we study uh, Homer as scholars and, and take him very seriously and he should be taken seriously but these are also just great exciting stories yeah. and I think you know we shouldn't forget that absolutely <laughs> and, and they're, they're insightful stories also you know they're about human nature and I think human nature is the thing that has not changed culture yeah. has changed but you know we still feel the same pain and grief and we still go to war yeah. and, and Homer's examination of these things you and I were talking a little bit about uh, before this podcast began about um, combat mm. trauma, yeah, uh, which the ancients absolutely knew about. I mean, it's so clear if you look at the Ajax, if you yeah. look at Philoctetes, if you look at the end of the Odyssey. This is what I've been hearing about Ajax is the play. <laughs> yeah, yes, it is. Yeah. And you can absolutely see it. And at the end of the Odyssey, here you have Odysseus. He's finally come home. He kills the suitors. That sort of feels justified mm-hmm. within the world. Um, but then he, then when the suitors' families come, he wants to kill them. Mm-hmm. He wants to kill anyone who ever helped the suitors. He wants to kill the maids who slept with the suitors, yeah, you know, against their will, who basically had no choice in the matter. Um, and that sort of instinct, that hyper vigilance, and that desire to kind of meet every possible obstacle with violence. I think. I think. Lots of people have argued that that's coming from kind of a PTSD, yeah. you know, feeling, and you can understand that he's had twenty years of horror and brutality. Yeah, <laughs> no, these uh, there are so many themes that still resonate. We're we're still humans, <laughs> um, despite kind of cultural differences. Um, I'd I'd love to hear a little bit about maybe how you first got into classics, or if there was any um, Greek myth retellings that really 
like sparked a I mean I, I think you perhaps were like had already read ancient literature before reading Greek myth retellings but even still there was sort of some overlap there that kind of inspired that passion so um my my love of myth goes back really to my mom reading yeah. me these myths as as a child and I just I grew up in New York City I was very fortunate I could go to the Metropolitan Museum of Art and see just their incredible gorgeous antiquities collection and that you know I can remember the statue of an, the wounded Amazon statue yeah. um, and I just would like stare at it for hours <laughs> uh, and so I, I loved all of that um, from a very early age but I, I think the retelling that that really sparked a lot of my own desire to retell was Shakespeare's Troilus and Cressida. Hmm. So I have loved, you know, I, and studied and devoted myself to classics, you know, pretty much since I was five. <laughs> and I have also loved writing and yes. done all this work writing. Um, and for years, those ran on completely parallel tracks, but they never crossed. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I wrote only contemporary stuff, uh, and then I studied classics yeah. and read ancient poetry. Um, and when I was a senior in college, I was asked to co-direct this production of Troilus and Cressida, which is Shakespeare's version of the Iliad. Yeah. And it's a fabulous play. I don't know, have you, have you read I it? I haven't read it. My, I think I have embarrassingly, embarrassingly only read five Shakespeare yeah. plays in my life. <laughs> there's, but no, there's no Titus Andronicus is currently sitting on my bedside table <laughs> waiting for me to read it because of my Procne and Philomela obsession. <laughs> I was going to say, that's right. Yeah, I know. It's taken me a while, but... I'm back on I'm back on the Shakespeare bandwagon. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, Tristan and Cressida is really worth it. Um, it's a very angry, bitter, funny, dark mm -hmm. play, okay. and he really tears into all these ancient heroes and just skewers them and pulls apart the heroics. Yeah. Um, but there's also some some really interesting emotion in it, and he alludes to Achilles and Patroclus being lovers. Mm -hmm. He alludes to that tradition. And he also has sort of a very sweet scene between the two of them at one point. And I had already wanted to write about Achilles and Patroclus. I had done a ton of research on sort of representations of their relationship um, that I was planning to write my thesis about. I directed this play, and suddenly it was like finally these two things that I loved connected, yeah. the storytelling and the academic side. And I finished the play, and I thought, I don't want to write that as my thesis. I want to write it as a novel. Yeah. And that was really the beginning. So I, I credit Shakespeare's retelling with, <laughs> with kicking wonderful. off. wonderful. We've got the ancient version, the um, like Shakespeare mid, mid of the, the second millennium version. <laughs> and then we've got the 21st century <laughs> version. It's a nice continuation. People should read all three. <laughs> <laughs> Um, well, I my I, my next question that I ask everybody on the podcast <laughs> at the end, which I don't know if we've spoiled slightly, is to recommend a book. <laughs> but I imagine you have more recommendations. Um, <laughs> it, it would either be a piece of ancient literature, a modern book like your own, or a piece of non-fiction even, just something that you think, after listening to this podcast, once they've read Song of Achilles and Circe, um, listeners might be interested in going and reading next? Okay. So I'm going to try and limit myself to just a few. Okay, that's fine. <laughs> Last person definitely went beyond one as well, so <laughs> okay. I understand the desire. <laughs> um, 
I would absolutely recommend Emily Wilson's new translation of the Odyssey. I've just started that. I, it's terrific. It's terrific. <laughs> and I think she is incredibly smart and her approach to it is incredibly smart. Mm-hmm. And I love that she owns that translations are also interpretations. Mm-hmm. I think sometimes translations are presented as kind of an objective, you know, movement of this text from the ancient mm. to the modern world. And I, that's just not true. You're making yes, no. choices in every single line that yep. affect interpretation. Um, so I appreciate that she knows that <laughs> and, <laughs> yeah. you know, tells us, yeah. yes, I am interpreting. Um, it just, it also is a very exciting translation. She keeps herself to the same number of lines in English as in the Greek, oh, which okay. is, makes it really move. Mm-hmm. Uh, oftentimes you get translation bloat. I don't know if you, I'm sure you are familiar with that, where you're translating from the ancient Greek into the, into English and one line of Greek ends up with five lines of English. Yes. So she, she really, it's such a lean and fast moving translation. Um, and she brings out those voices that, that we haven't heard before. I think she's also trying to do that. So she has a wonderful approach to Penelope. Um, she talks about, uh, Slaves, and she uses the word slave. I think oftentimes in translations we use words like maids or handmaids, mm. but she's saying, you know, let's not forget Pretend. these were slaves. <laughs> yes. You know, this was a slave-based society. So I think that's very powerful mm. f- for a modern readership to really have kind of front and center. Um, so definitely that. Mm-hmm. Um, Trellis and Cressida. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm going to read this next. <laughs> <laughs> if you are interested in, in more, of the, more of the combat stuff... Um, I, lo- I mean, I truly love the Sophocles play, Philoctetes. It mm-hmm. is one of my absolute favorites. It's about the um, companion of, of Heracles. He initially goes, so he's older. He's kind of the oldest mm-hmm. generation there. He's the same generation as Nestor, basically. Mm-hmm. But he's still very strong and vital. And he has Heracles' famous bow. And he is traveling over to the Trojan War with Odysseus, and along the way he gets bitten by a snake. And the wound is sort of a magical wound, and it festers, and it smells, and it's horrible, and he screams and has fits. And Odysseus says, forget it, we're not taking this guy back on the boat. So Odysseus leaves him and abandons him alone on the island for ten years. And then it turns out that Troy can't fall without Philoctetes fighting with his bow on their side. So then they have to go back and get him. And it is amazing just how, just the, the speeches that Philoctetes has about how he feels so left behind mm. and forgotten and you know he used to be such an important part of you know he, he was an important hero and people respected him and now because he's old they don't care about mm. him it's just it's just i i was reading it when my grandmother was quite ill and aging and experiencing a lot of mm. those same feelings and again that resonance between the ancient world and and the modern world yeah. and also kind of the PTSD aspect um it's just beautiful yeah. so it is it is um, it is really wonderful reading about emotions and feelings and, and themes in ancient literature that you feel today. There's something quite grounding in that, I yes. think, the knowing that, that how timeless this yes. is. Yes. Yeah. Oh, well, I have. It's so fascinating, everything you've been talking about. I have really enjoyed listening to you. This has just been a wonderful podcast episode, and I'm sure everybody listening has enjoyed it as well. Um, thank you so much for sitting down with me this morning amidst your very busy schedule. <laughs> it was my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me and for such great questions. Well, all I can say is that I hope you all enjoyed listening to that interview as much as I enjoyed recording it. 
it was absolutely fascinating hearing from Madeline Miller on the topic of Circe and on Greek myth retellings. And we have many more exciting topics to cover in future episodes, so stay tuned for next Fortnite's episode, which is all about combat trauma in ancient Greece. And in the meantime, don't forget to follow us at That's Ancient on Twitter, because as we've established, That's Ancient History is too long for a Twitter handle, but I'm sure you'll manage to find us. And if you have any interest in learning about specific topics to do with antiquity and would like to hear future episodes on those subjects, then do tweet at me and I will see what I can do. But that's all for now. Thanks for listening.